Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. God is jealous for you, and he calls us not to be jealous. But he can be jealous and still be perfect because he knows there is nothing better than me. And so when he says, I, I'm jealous for you, what is he saying? I want you to want me because there's nothing and no one that is better than me. It's not, a, it's not a selfish in the way of, I want this for me. It's a, I want this for you. I want you to want me because I know what will happen if you fix your eyes on me and you yield yourself to me and you give your life to me. Come on, we start to get consumed by him. Like, guys, Christianity should not be something that we have to work up. Like, it's either real or it's not. Like, what, what is even the point? Like, what's the point of putting on a face and pretending to be someone who is in love with him? I'd be like getting married to someone you don't love and having to pretend that you love them the rest of your life. Like, that would be work. And you'd be missing out. You know what it's like, those of you who are married in here, to be married to the one that you love and that you want. It's amazing, right? It's like, I just, I'm like, I get to love you. The rest of my life, I get to love you. And I get to be loved by you. Do you know how how miserable it would be if I was married to someone that I didn't love and I had to pretend to love them the rest of my life? That would be work, that would be hard. And there's no way that I could do it the way that I can if I'm actually truly in love. It's like you go through things in life and what you have is either real or it isn't. Like when you walk through a hard time but you're walking with him, the hard time, it doesn't just go away all the time. Sometimes something happens in an instant and all of a sudden something that was hard is gone. But, but sometimes you have to walk through it. And, and sometimes it, you walk for a while. But there's something about walking through hard things with him. There's a peace that you have. There's even a joy that you have in the midst of hard times, in the midst of hard things. And it's real or it isn't. You can't conjure it up. You can't fake it. It's either there or it's not. And you know if it's there. You could fake to other people that you have peace and joy. But what does that do for your own heart? I just feel like, man, I just want to challenge us in this year. Like, like let this be a year where nothing is faked where we actually are honest enough to say, you know what, I don't have this, but I want it and I know it's mine and I know it's available in you. I'm not gonna fake one more day trying to fake it till I make it. I'm gonna be brutally honest before you, Lord, and just say, you know what, the truth of the matter is, right now, the thing that I'm going through, I don't have a peace that passes understanding. The only peace I have is my level of understanding how it could be okay. 
My peace is limited to my own knowledge, my own ability to reason and to figure out. And when I think I can see a way, I have peace temporarily. But when I, it looks like there is no way, that peace is gone. Because it's not based on you, the unchanging one. It's based on me and what I know and what I understand. That's not a peace that passes understanding. That's a peace that is based on understanding. And just like, look, it's okay. It's okay to say, you know what, I'll be honest, I don't have peace. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to just say, I guess that's just the way it is. It's no, I don't have peace, but I know there's peace available. So I'm pressing into you, Lord. Show me what I need to see that I'm not seeing. Show me what I need to know that I don't know. Show me what it is that I'm missing that's causing me to not have peace in this moment. Because God, I'm not okay not being okay. I'm not at peace not having peace. And I could fake it and people could think that I have it, but what would that matter? I'd still be in turmoil. There's no pressure on you to have to act a certain way. There's an invitation into actually being a certain way. It's not pretend because if you don't, people won't think you're a Christian. What does it matter if you pretended and they did? What would that do? What would that solve? What would that prove? How would that help? Well, just, you know, you should have peace. So pretend that you have peace. Act peaceful. Okay, so everybody leaves thinking you have peace, not praying for you because they see turmoil, not encouraging you and coming alongside you and walking with you and bearing your burdens with you because you fooled everybody into thinking you had something that you didn't. How's that going? When everybody leaves and you don't have an act to put on anymore, you're still the same person. You still have turmoil. You still have a lack of peace. It doesn't make you lesser. It makes you in progress. It makes you a Christian. It makes you following Jesus and realizing, I don't know everything. I haven't stepped fully into everything that's available, but I'm following him and my desire is to. So I just want to pray that over you real quick. God, I I just pray that any pressure to try to put on a certain face or act that is keeping us from being honest before you and being healed. You realize James says when you confess your sins one to another, it brings healing. Why? Because you say, you know what? I've done wrong. I've missed it. That's the first step in getting it right. So Father, I just pray that if there's any pressure that's being put on people to have to live up to a certain image or to pretend something, Father, that grace would come and release them from that. So they could be honest with others and themselves about where they are. So that healing can come. So they can become the thing that they've been acting like. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning. Everyone have a good Christmas? Oh, we had an amazing Christmas. We always have an amazing Christmas. Um, We're about to begin a new year, and I'm always like, God, what, what do you want me to be thinking about in this year ahead, and what do you want me to talk to our church family about, about this year ahead? And I just kept having the same word come into my head over and over again. And so I'm going to preach on that a little bit. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up real quick to Ephesians chapter 4. Then we're going to jump to Ephesians 5. And then we're going to get to the message. Paul's writing to the, to the church in Ephesus, and he starts out what we call chapter four. This was just a continuous letter. And sometimes I think it's important to just read the whole letter through rather than breaking it up into chapters. I'm not saying that's not a good way to study the Bible. If you need to break it into chapters, break it into chapters. But I am saying sometimes it's a good idea to just read things in, in entirety or at least read through the entirety of that subject within that letter. You know, so if you're reading Romans 7, don't stop there and don't read that without reading Romans 6 first to give you context and then read Romans 8 to give you the answer or you'll be stuck in a place in in 7 that that is missing the context of 6 and missing the answer of 8. There's a lot of things that are like that in the word when you read through them. And so just realize, like when Paul wrote this letter, he never intended for us to break it up by chapter and verse. We did that for our own ability to be able to talk about the Bible so that people would know what we're referencing. It makes it easier. Like I can say, open to chapter four, and you guys are all in the same place versus saying, open to that spot where Paul says, therefore I beseech you. (laughs) So it's helpful, but it's also important that we make sure that, that we read things as they're written. And so... Side note, I don't know why I felt like I needed to tell someone that. Ephesians 4, chapter 1 says this. I'm just going to read one verse. I'm going to do the thing I'm telling you not to do. Uh, (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's a weighty, weighty statement. This is Paul from prison writing to this church. And he's saying, look, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Whether he's, he's in prison or whether he's, means I'm, I'm one who's been constrained by the Lord for a purpose. He says, I'm, I'm imploring you, I'm beseeching you, brethren, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. To not just be called, but to actually walk in a manner worthy of that calling. You notice the walk in a manner worthy of the calling, the way that it comes. He doesn't say walk in a manner worthy so that you may be called. That's where legalism and self-righteousness get messed up. We start thinking, okay, if there's a way that I could walk which makes me worthy of being called. No, he's saying, God saw that you were worthy to be called. Now I'm asking you, would you walk in a manner consistent with the worth that God saw in you? That's a big deal. How about Ephesians chapter five, verse eight? Same letter, same church, same Paul. 
For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the, wor- in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. That's a weighty statement. Like, if you just read that, and it's just, oh yeah, we were formerly light, darkness, now you're children of light, walk in a manner worthy of the light, and you're just reading through to get to the next verse, to get to the end of your daily Bible reading, you could read that and not even sit with that verse just for a second and think about what's being said. Like, he's literally saying, and again, notice the order. You were formerly darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Not, you're in darkness, walk as children of light, and you'll become light of the Lord. It's always, this is who you were, this is who God said that you are, and who he created you to be. Now, would you begin to walk in a way that lines up with who you really are? But man, that's still weighty. That's not like casual. That's not something you just read and then move on. It's like, wait a minute. You're saying that I'm supposed to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. You're saying that I'm supposed to walk as a child of light. We talk about how the world's getting darker. Has there ever been more of a need for those who are light in the Lord to walk as children of light? All right, that's the message. Go home and do that. Someone's clapping because they think I preach long. They're like, Phew. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But so when, you, when, when I read those things, and I was, the Lord had me reading these verses a few different times over and over over the past few weeks. And the, the first response is, I can't, I can't. Like, I'm, I'm just being honest. Like, like, don't tell me, well, you can do all things through Christ to, you know, with God, all things are possible. I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is if I look at these things naturally and I hear walk in a manner worthy of your calling and that I was made the light of the Lord and that I'm now to walk as a child of that light, like that seems really daunting to me. It doesn't seem hard for moments in days, but it seems for the rest of my life to live that way seems really hard. And honestly, it seems impossible. And I think that's the proper response. And I think that's good because I think that positions us for what we need to actually be able to walk as children of the light and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Because when I realize that I can, but I know that he called me to, then that means there must be something in between my ability and what he's asking that is not my responsibility completely to be able to do the thing that he's called me to do. If, if I told you, hey, could you do me a favor and change that light bulb? You would realize right away, I can't. I don't have Inspector Gadget arms. I'm not tall enough. But you would also realize that if I said, hey, I need you to change that light fixture, 
that must mean that I have something that you don't, that you need in order to be able to do the thing I'm asking you to do. And so your next question would be either how or where's the ladder or where's the lift or yes, I will, but, but how can I? And whenever we come to something in the word where we see what God has called us to and we know that in our own ability it's impossible, that must mean there's something between what's possible in our own strength and what he's calling us to that is on him to provide so that we are capable of doing the thing that it is that he's asking of us. And that thing is grace. The empowering presence of God at work within us both to will and to do. Think about it, like the first thing he wants to change is the will. You can't even want to follow Jesus without him putting that desire within you. You can't even want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling without him putting that desire in you. So if that desire is in you, that means he's already at work. That should give us a great hope to realize, okay, so you who began the good work, what was the beginning of the good work that you'll be faithful to complete? The beginning of the good work wasn't the first thing that I did. It was the desire to do it. It was that I saw that there's something you're calling me to and I want to say yes to this and I want to step into it and I want to say yes to it. That's the beginning of the good work that he then will be faithful to bring to completion. So anytime you have a desire in you when you read something like this to go, I want to, that's good news because that means the good work has begun within you. It says both to will and to do. And so I was just thinking about that and I was thinking like, okay, so if I want to do these things and I know that it's completely impossible on my own to do and I know that I need his grace, his strength, his power at work within me, then what is the key to receiving that grace? there's the, the grace of salvation, right? Which was that I see my need for a savior. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he was resurrected, that he became my sin and took it upon himself. And when I say yes to the invitation to surrender my life to him, to repent and turn from what was and turn to Jesus and lock eyes with him and surrender my life over and make him Lord and receive the forgiveness that was paid for on the cross, I am saved. I am as saved as I will ever be. That is, that's, that's, that's grace. But then if you read through the New Testament, you see so many different times he talks to people that are already saved about receiving grace, about greater grace, about extraordinary grace, about grace upon grace, about grace without measure, about the measure of grace even at sometimes. And so I was reading that and I was just obviously brought me to these chapters, but James chapter four, verse six says this, but he gives a greater grace. He's talking about our need to actually live the life that he's called us to. He says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First Peter five says this, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive. I thank you that it's living. I thank you that it's a sword that divides truth from lie, spirit from soul. God, that when your word comes and it removes something, it's something that was never meant to be there to begin with. God, that we're always better after your sword comes. Even if we don't feel it in the moment, even if it feels painful, even if it feels hard. God, we we just are thankful for your word. We're thankful that when you speak, it carries your authority and it carries the ability all contained with the words that you spoke. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. So he gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. See, here's the thing. The humble and the proud both need grace. The humble understands his need for it. The prideful doesn't. It's not that that one needs grace and one doesn't need grace. It's the humble person who walks in humility understands, I need grace. I need his grace. The prideful doesn't understand their need for it. And so it says that God gives grace to the humble. So if I want to walk in greater grace, then that means I have to walk in greater levels of humility. If I want to walk out in a, walk this life out in a manner worthy of my calling, I'm going to need a lot of grace at work within me, which means I'm going to need a lot of humility so that the grace that can, comes from him can actually flow and land on my life and empower me to walk and to become who he meant for me to become. It says that he opposes the proud. We love to, to quote, if God be for us, who can be against us? But I'll flip that around for you. If God be against you, it doesn't matter who's for you. It says, like that word there, resist or opposes, is the same one that we're told when it says to resist the enemy. It's not a passive, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to not worry about them until they get rid of their pride. And, you know, once they become humble, then I'll give them grace. It's an actual active thing. The same way that we're called to resist the enemy by submitting to God and he will flee. It says that God resists or opposes the proud. If you keep running up against a wall in your life with something you can't get over, it may be time to ask God, are are we in opposition here? Because the, the prideful God's opposed to, but if you think about it, the prideful are also opposed to God. I think I can prove it. Oh, I wrote this down, I'll read it to you. Why does he want us to be humble? Because he wants us to see our need for him. Because without him, I'll never become who he meant for me to be. I could become something, but I will never become the thing that he created me to be apart from him. And so, so there's no chance, right? So when I'm prideful and I'm, I'm full of pride in myself and my ability, he opposes me. Well, how long will he oppose me? Until... I humble myself and see my need for him. And here's the thing. That doesn't mean that I can't have worldly success walking in pride. I can. It means I don't have success the way he defines success if I'm walking in pride. And the truth of the matter is, 
trying and failing at things that we were called to is better than succeeding at things that we were never called to. And here's why. If I'm falling short, but I'm going after the right thing, grace can come and enable me into it. But if I'm succeeding at something I was never meant to succeed in, I can become so full of my own success that I never actually stop to ask, is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? And I could spend my whole life being successful, never actually even walking towards the thing that I was called to in life. In Acts chapter nine, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It'll be on the screen too. Saul is heading to Damascus. He's on a, on a donkey, on a horse. Those are kind of interchangeable in the Bible, but he's riding on, a, on an animal and he's headed to, he's on the road to Damascus and he's heading to persecute the church. He's got permission signed by all the scribes and Pharisees. He's a, scribe, or a Pharisee himself and he's got this permission slip to go and round up these Christians who are following this man, Jesus, who call themselves the way. And he's heading there with a heart full of zeal. He's heading there believing that he really is doing what God has called him to do. He wants to please God. He just doesn't know how yet. And he's on a horse and he's heading there and uh, Jesus encounters him. And it says he was struck and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. See, Saul is full of pride. He's full of zeal. He's full of himself because he is born on the right day to the right tribe, circumcised on the right day. You know, do you realize when he lists all those things and says, I now count them as rubbish, it's because before he counted them as valuable? Like if, if he always counted that as rubbish and didn't take any pride in it, there's no point in saying, now that I know Jesus, I count everything that I used to count as rubbish as rubbish. Nobody's saying the things that I used to be so proud of and they used to fill me with pride and make me so self-confident and so self-righteous, those things I now count as waste compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. So here's Saul, full of pride. I'm born in the right tribe, on the right day, circumcised on the right day. As to the law, perfect. I, I know the, the word as good as any Pharisee and better than most. I studied under Gamaliel, who is the greatest teacher, the greatest Pharisee that someone is the highest, most prestigious place of honor for a, for a young Jewish man to be able to say that they were a student of Gamaliel. And he's full of that. And he's heading to go in his pride and in his zeal, and in his self-righteousness, and in his knowledge. He's headed to persecute the very ones who are following Jesus. And God knocks him off his horse. Think about it. We say that about people that are prideful. Someone needs to knock them off their horse. You ever been knocked off a horse? Anyone in here? Am I the only one? You have, look at all, all right, awesome. If you've ever been knocked off a horse, you would understand that it's much better to step down off the horse. <laughs> you would understand that choosing to get off the horse yourself and get down on the ground is a whole lot better than being knocked off the horse when you didn't choose and landing on the ground however you landed. 
Saul gets knocked off the horse, knocked to the ground by God. And he lays there and he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? All those things that Saul counted as valuable, knowing the Torah, following the law, having the right teacher, coming from the right family, following all of the traditions. He has all the knowledge in the world, yet he doesn't know him. He has no relationship with him because the man who should have known him more than anyone by worldly standards asks the voice speaking to him, who are you, Lord? In other words, I don't know you. I can prove that because Jesus' answer was, Jesus, I'm the Lord. The Lord said to him, who are you persecuting? Why, who are you, Lord? He says this, I am Jesus. Like, just think about who you are persecuting. So pride put God in opposition to him, but it also put him in opposition to God. And he knows all about him and is so full of knowledge and self-righteousness, yet he doesn't know Jesus. You can know everything and not know him. You can do all the right things. You can come from the right family. You can go to church every Sunday. You can study the Bible. I'm just telling you this. It's possible to do all these things and not have relationship with him and let what you know be a replacement for who you know and being known by him. And when you do that, chances are you'll become prideful because that same Paul would later talk and say, knowledge puffs up, makes arrogant, makes boastful, makes prideful. It literally means to inflate. He said, knowing all that stuff inflated me, but love actually edifies Am I saying doing all those things is wrong? No, I'm saying all of those things apart from relationship with him will lead to a prideful person that knows everything about what everybody else should do and probably begin to persecute other people and fault find with other people and actually not know him for themselves. Oh, just a side note. You know what I love about that story about Saul? I love that he's on a, the road to Damascus. If you ever look it up, you can look it up on maps. It's like this. It has to go around bodies of water, over rivers, up through desert, and it winds around like that. He's on a crooked road. He encounters Jesus, and look what happens. Acts chapter nine. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he may regain his sight. He takes him off this crooked path. He knocks him off of his horse. He humbles him. He puts scales on his eyes. Think about this. Paul is in the most humble position that someone can be. He's been knocked off his horse. He realizes everything I thought I knew was wrong. 
And now he's blind and can't see and dependent on other people for the first time in his life. And the Lord says, I took him off that crooked road and I brought him to a street called Straight. What did it take for him to go from the crooked road to the straight street? It took him being humbled. And it took everything that he counted as precious and valuable and important that gave him a sense of self-righteousness and pride being stripped away in that one moment when Jesus said, it's me you're persecuting. And he said, who who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. At that moment, Saul realizes everything I thought I knew was wrong because he's the Lord and yet I've been persecuting him. Tons of time. In 1 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So if you read that, it's like, well, son, should we not want to know anything? Just be ignorant the rest of our lives because then I'll never be arrogant? No. He's, I, I believe if we take that in context with what he's saying right, right next, what he's saying is that knowledge alone Knowledge alone will make you arrogant. Knowledge with relationship makes you useful for edifying. Because he says this, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. If anyone has knowledge apart from love, he doesn't know as he ought to, but if anyone loves God and is known by him, all of a sudden everything that God reveals never becomes a source of pride and arrogance that just puffs you up. It becomes something that flows through you and edifies other people. I had a couple of compare and contrast here that I really wanted to go through real quick. So, there's this danger of two ditches. One is that I become super knowledgeable, but I have no relationship. There's no love. I don't love him. I don't know him. I'm not known by him, but I know all about him. I know the word better than anyone. I can argue with anyone. I can prove any point that I want to prove. I can read the Bible and make it think, say exactly what I want it to say. And I'll be harsh and I'll be unloving and I'll be unkind but I will make sure that you know that I know more than you. And I'll use the Bible to do it. But then there's the other ditch, right? Which is this. I'm not a religious person, I just love Jesus. That's a cool saying. The problem is, is A, the Bible gives us the definition of what true religion is to look after the widows and orphans in their time of distress and to keep oneself undefiled by the world. This is pure religion in the sight of God. So there's nothing in the Bible that says don't be religious. It just tells us don't be the wrong religion. For one. For two, typically what that means is I don't really like rules. I just like this feeling. I just, you know, I just, it's just, God is love. 
and I just snuggle with him all day. I don't need people. I just, I just love Jesus. I don't, I don't want to be part of anything organized. I just love Jesus. And here's the thing, is that if all we have is an emotion without knowing him through his word, then we don't become those dogmatic people who are legalistic and sometimes, just to be honest, seem pretty angry. I've never met too many happy legalists. Most of them seem really angry and harsh. Well, you'd be angry and harsh too if you were frustrated by the fact that you knew everything that was wrong but didn't know the power to be transformed and were trying to attain something through your actions rather than allowing him to flow through you by grace so that you could actually become what you saw in the word. You might be frustrated too. And you might want to make sure that everybody else was as frustrated as you because when you saw somebody who was free and happy, you thought to yourself, they must not know the rules because they wouldn't be that happy if they knew what I do. Let me go and help them by giving them my knowledge so I can burden them with the same thing that's burdening me and we can bear each other's burdens. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it says that. But on the other side, you have people who, because all they are after is an emotion, A, anything that makes them feel something they don't wanna feel is bad. And B, they're easily blown about by the wind of every doctrine. One has wind blowing into it and inflating it, leading to pride and arrogance. The other one has wind blowing it and pushing it wherever the wind is going. Paul says, blown about by every wind of doctrine. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So what do I need? Well, I need both. I need to love him and be loved by him, but I also need to know him and be known by him. How do I know him? Through spending time with him and communing with him, through discovering him through his word. How do I follow him? Well, he gave us an example. Fortunately, we have the Bible. We can open up and see his example anytime that we want to. How does that not puff me up as I gain this knowledge? Because I understand something. I am incapable of what this thing is asking of me apart from him. I can't do it on my own. And that positions me in humility to receive the grace needed to actually walk out the life that I'm called to walk. And now all of a sudden, because I'm receiving grace from him, I have grace for other people. I don't, grace doesn't get me here and then all of a sudden I start looking back and anybody that's not quite as far along as me, what's wrong with you? Get up here where I am. I look back and I see people and I'm like, you know what? I remember what it was like before grace transformed me and I thought that way and I believed that way. And I have compassion and I have empathy and I have grace for them. Not harsh, not angry, not belittling. I've, because why? Because it took humility for me to receive the grace. And once the grace comes, I stay humble so that grace doesn't change me into something that causes me to be prideful because I know this, I'm always gonna need more grace 
because I'm always gonna walk in, wanna walk in a greater level of who he created me to be. And the only way that I can do that is through him humbling myself in humility before him, confessing my need for him, confessing my own inability, but declaring, God, I know what you said and I know what you've called me to be and I believe that it's possible, but I need your grace both to make me want to, but to help me to actually walk out what it is that I see that you're calling me to. a lot of good stuff in there. So as we step into a new year, if there's things in your life that you keep coming up against, and you've been rebuking the devil, and you've been quoting scripture and you've been asking people to pray for you and yet it doesn't seem to go away. It could be. It's because God is opposing you in that area of your life. It could be because you think you can change things on your own, in your own strength because you think you can fix it, you can change it, you can make it happen. And whenever we think we can do it on our own, we've stepped into pride and God is now opposing us. So you gotta just stand. We say this around here that the, the, the vision is Jesus and the plan is obedience. It's a a simple statement. What does it mean? It means our plan, our vision, what we're looking at is Jesus. We see him and we see where he is and who he is. We see who he's created us to be and who he's called us to be. We have one plan. It's to be obedient to whatever he asks. I wanna challenge us this year, A, to read the word please. There's Bible plans that you can read through the entire Bible in a year. You could read the, new, the whole New Testament this year, which will make you want to go back and read the Old Testament. But I want to challenge every one of us to read the Word, but I want to challenge us this. Approach the Word in humility. Not already knowing what it's going to say. Not reading just to read, to get by and say, I did my reading plan for the day. I'm saying, when you read a verse like, therefore, I beseech you. Oh yeah, I was going to explain that real quick because context is important. There's a therefore that starts that sentence. That means we have to look at what was just said before that. Do you know what was just said before that? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. I beseech you, brethren, as, as, as a prisoner of the Lord, to, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. And the first thing he says after that is with all humility. Humility. 
He says, there's a power at work within us able to do more than we could ask or think. And that power is gonna make it capable that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But there's gonna be some things that we're gonna need to see in our own lives if we wanna walk in that power. And the first one that he lists with all humility. Not just some humility. Not just what, I mean, I'm a little prideful. Don't you know that a little leaven ruins the whole lump? Don't you know that nothing little stays little? Everything grows. And when you read the word, which I really, I'm just asking you, please, like, please don't just come here just to come to church. Like, please hear this as the Lord asking you. I'm not saying, no, this is God speaking. I'm saying, hear this as this is what God's put in my heart for you. Please read the word this year, every day. Every single day, read the word. I don't care if it feels boring sometimes because now that seeds in you and it's capable of producing after its own kind and bringing life. But, but I'm asking this, that, that as we do it, we, we would read the word with humility, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And when you come across a verse like, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Those who claim the name of Christ must in this life walk even as he walked. You are light in the Lord, now walk as children of the light. You, you, when you start reading it, you'll start seeing these things. Don't just gloss over them. Stop and ask yourself, A, do I feel like I am doing this? And B, if I'm not, why not? And C, what would it take for me to feel like I am? And then D, realize I can't do that. If I could, I already would. And humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, I just read something in your word that if I'm honest, it shakes me to my core. It makes me tremble. But God, I know that you wouldn't say something that you weren't making possible. I can't do this. I need you. And all of a sudden, that simple, I can't. But I know that you, you can I, it's impossible with me, but I know it's possible with you. I need you. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your spirit at work within me because I want to do what your word is calling me to do. That desire is there placed by you, but I can't do this on my own. That's why Jesus gave two statements that we hold each other in, in, in context. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, apart from me, there's nothing that you can do that's worth doing. You can do things apart from him, just not the things he's calling you to. Nothing worthwhile. And then he says this, but I'm with you always. What did he say right before that? Go into all the world, make disciples, preach the gospel, raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim the, the year of the Lord. What's he, what was he saying? He's saying, listen, guys, Apart from me, you can't do it. You'll never be apart from me every time you're doing something that I've called you to do. I'll be there with you and my grace will empower you to be able to do what it is that I've asked you to. So Father, I just pray that A, you would give us the, the, the will to want to be people of the word this year. God, I'm asking for that for myself and for every person in this room, that the desire to know your word and know you through your word would be lit in every single person's heart that's hearing this this morning. 
And God, I'm asking that not only would we have the will, but that we would do it. And see, here's the thing. You've got to realize is this, that, that, that there is the will to do something and the desire to do something and then the ability to do something. But in there, mixed in, is us yielding to him and actually cooperating with him and saying, okay, Lord, I'm not just going to lay on my bed and say, if you want me to read the Bible, fling it open, make it float across the room and hover in front of me and I'll read it. No, it's saying, God, okay, I know that that you've put a desire to read your word, and I know that the grace will be there to be able to understand what I'm reading and to receive revelation, because apart from you, I can't receive revelation of anything. I can just attain knowledge. And God, I don't want to just accumulate knowledge. I want to know you. I want revelation from you. And so, God, I, I believe that. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make time in the morning to read the word. I'm going to make sure the Bible is next to my bed so that I don't have an excuse before I go to bed or when I wake up in the morning. I'm going to make sure that every single day I do what I can do and I trust you with everything that I can't because I can't do all of this without you. So Father, I'm just praying and that we would approach your word with humility. That we would humble ourselves. When Peter's writing, he says that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, and he says this, therefore humble yourselves, meaning what? We can choose humility. Trust me, you'd way rather dismount the horse than get thrown off. You'd way rather choose, okay, I'm getting off my high horse, I'm getting back down to earth, than God have to knock you off the horse and you land on the ground. But I promise you this, if you read through the Bible from beginning to end, you will see there is one constant. It's be humble or be humbled. Be humble or be humbled. You get to choose. Not choosing is choosing. Because if you're not choosing to be humble, you're choosing to be humbled because it's one of the two. Because God will have his way in your life. He's that good. So Father, I just pray that, that we approach your word with humility not presuming to know anything apart from what you show us. And that when we read something, God, we wouldn't gloss over it. We wouldn't just say, well, that's for other people. We would ask you, what does that mean for me? And then in humility, whatever you're asking, God, that we would lay down, we would set aside, we would step out of, we would step into whatever it is, that we would tremble before you knowing that you've spoke, feeling the weight of that word, not dismissing it and discarding it. And then we would allow that to bring us to a place of humility before you saying, God, I I know what you said. I can't do this without you. I need you. And grace will flow and will be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.